The first reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 23, verses 13 to 25. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The third time he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. And the second reading is from Luke 23, chapter 42, 32 to 43. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Good morning. Welcome once again to Windsor District Baptist Church. Uh, if you've been following along in your Bible, you would have noticed we jumped a portion of text. Uh, I preached that part last Good Friday, so if you want to recap on that, you can look back a year ago. Uh, for those of you who might not know me, my name's Stephen Cole. I'm the youth and young adults pastor here, and it gives me a great joy, and it's a great privilege uh, to be preaching uh, once again. This morning's uh, message I've titled, Being Barabbas. And the reason for doing so is because he has quite a unique position in the story and the drama that's unfolding in Jesus' trial and the life that he's going to live shortly thereafter. In this morning's sermon, we're going to look at a doctrinal uh, kind of position, I guess, of justification and also that of substitution. 
Justification being the idea that we're made right with God, we're no longer condemned because our sins are acquitted. And substitution, the idea that someone took our place, someone took our punishment. So those will be the two main things that we look at. The tension, however, that I want to draw out for you this morning is the means by which we are justified in the eyes of God, made right with Him. There are many different ways that you and I, people, we long to be justified. We do it all the time. I remember when I was a teenager and on the property that I grew up on, me and one of the, my mates that I grew up with, we wanted to buy a Ford Bush Basher because there were some girls that we were interested in and we thought the car's going to kind of seal the deal on, on impressing the ladies. And so we bought this car and, and we had the girls out and we went for a joyride in it. And one of the girls said, can I drive? And, and sure enough, no more than five minutes later with her behind the, the wheel, we flipped the car. And my car lasted all of two days. We got out, we were completely fine, and the first thing that happened, how are we going to spin this to Dad? Dad was the manager on the farm and I knew we were busted big time. And so we started thinking about how we're going to do it. And my mate, he was uh, a boarding school kid, so he wasn't there too often. So we came up with this idea. Let's pin it on you, because you won't have to deal with it all, and then we can just kind of get off scot-free. So that's what we did. We pinned it on his back, poor fella, and uh, he took the fall for us. This is people trying to self-justify themselves for the things that they've done wrong. Now, what they won't tell you is that there's an extreme amount of guilt that comes with self-justification. I felt bad for my friend and I knew that I was lying to my old man. The truth eventually came out, I spilt the beans. And my dad told me I need to go apologize to my mate, make things right, apologize to him, and, and some disciplinary actions put in place. And so I did that but at the end, after confession, after the sins were exposed, restitution was made, things were good, things were right, not because I justified myself, but because my father did that for me. And I tell you that story because it rings true of our fallen nature. We love to try and prove ourselves in the eyes of others, whether it's God or whether it's just other people. We try to do it all the time. Some of us, we can try and do it through our work, and our achievements, our studies, we proved to other people that we're someone of value, we're someone of worth, because look how I've rised. Some of us will do it through our clothing, right? You've got, got Gucci on or something like that. We buy a Merc because we want to show others and we want to prove to others that we're doing well in life. Sometimes when our actions are displayed quite horribly and we want to prove to others, well, my motivations were genuine or we just pin the blame on someone in our past life. Well, the reason I act like this is because it's someone else's fault who did it against me a long time ago. We love to justify, actually it's a craving of ours to be seen right in the eyes of other people. We can't help but do it, we do it all the time. But even if we were to be looking good in the eyes of everyone, what's it worth at the end of the day and does it really mean anything? For those who don't know God, neither do they fear God, this can become the whole purpose of one's life, to prove yourself. But for Christians, it's not to be this way. 
To live a life to just look good and to look right in the eyes of others, God hates that. He hates it. He hates the religious leaders for doing that. And something he abhors just as much is people who think they can justify themselves or prove themselves right before God on their own terms. People who try to think, well, I can do it. I can make myself right with you, Lord. No, you can't. Where the people believe self-justification is the way we do it, the gospel says actually God justifies sinners. God does the work. And even in religious circles, we can get caught up. Like perform the religious ceremonies. And so on the basis of what I've done, I'm right before the Lord. Well, I've employed a lot of the Christian virtues. And because of my Christian virtues and the way that I live, I'm right before the Lord. Those things don't make us right before the Lord. It's the other way around. The Lord justifies us, and out of that come the Christian virtues. And out of that comes the life lived for the Lord. And as we're going to see this morning in the sermon, the only person who comes out justified before God is the sinner who trusts in a Messiah who died for him. And the big question that I've got for you this morning, if we can throw that up, How do you know that you are justified before God? How do you know that you are right before God? And I want to put the question in a negative light, because it hits just harder. If we could have the next one. How do you know that God isn't going to condemn you when you meet Him? remember my sister asking me that when I was about 18, and it shook me. How do you know that when you go to stand before God that He won't condemn you? And what's your basis? We're going to find the answer to these questions unfolded in three points. We're going to look through verses 13 to 25, that justification being made right before God, it comes at a price, it's costly. In 32 to 39, where we'll make the jump, the price of justification is paid by God in Jesus. And lastly, in verses 40 to 43, we are justified by God through the forgiveness of sins. With that, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to enter the text. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would mold our hearts. Lord, that today is the day that we remember your Son, that his body was broken, that he was crushed for us, that he endured the cross so that we could have forgiveness of sins and life anew. I pray that we wouldn't minimize it, but we would glory in it, Father. In your name, amen. If today were the the precise day and hour that Jesus went to the cross, he'd already be nailed to it. In the early uh, hours of the morning, Judas had already kissed him and betrayed him. One of his closest friends, Peter, has already deserted him and left because he doesn't want to be seen as associating with the Messiah. Daylight breaks, he's gone before Pilate, as he's been with the chief priests. Pilate wants nothing to do with him, he sent him over to Herod. Herod's giving him a few questions and sent him back to Pilate. And that's where we enter the story. Pilate's been interrogating him, he finds no fault in Jesus, nothing of accusation that holds up because what they brought to him was that Jesus is misleading people in insurrection against Rome. 
but he can't find any evidence for it. And the irony that we find actually is that the chief priests have incited a, a quite a large riot against Jesus. And if there's any followers, the chief priests have them, and they're quite angry. And so based on the lack of evidence that Pilate finds, he says, I'm not going to condemn him to death. What I'm going to do for you, though, instead is I'm going to whip him. I'm going to have him flogged to ease your bloodthirst. Now, take note here that the system is broken. The whole point of a justice system is that justice prevails. But what we find here is Jesus about to be flogged because people don't like him when he shouldn't have been flogged at all. It's just put into a frenzy without cause. And Pilate thinks he's doing the right thing. He thinks he's meeting the people halfway, you know, doing what is right. Instead, his motivation really proves to show that what he wants, more than anything, is to maintain his position. He wants to maintain his role. You see, you don't punish people because the majority don't like them. You punish people because there's actually something there to punish. Jesus is innocent. And Pilate, he slowly slips as the crowd roars with their voices, and the third time he addresses the crowd to say, Jesus has done nothing wrong. They say, crucify him and give us Barabbas. And Scripture says their voices won out, and so we look at this. What had the victory of the day? It wasn't justice. It wasn't good. It was injustice. The cries of murderers win the day. They seize the day. And it's worth pointing out that the way, or the reason, sorry, that the religious leaders hated Jesus so much, he was favored. He was popularized by the crowd. And what was happening was there was a power struggle with the religious leaders. And they didn't want to lose control over the people. They didn't want to be seen poorly in the eyes of people. Self-justified people. So when the religious leaders go to Pilate, they're not going to play that card, are they? They're not going to go up and say, well, look, we don't see that we're valued as much by the people anymore and we want to kill Jesus. And so they swing it a different way. Jesus claims that he's a king, and that's rivaling Caesar, and he's leading a rebellion that incites people. Kill him on that basis. These guys have no concern for justice. They've got no concern for peace. And we know that because what they do when they're offered the opportunity, Jesus or Barabbas, they release a guy who's known for insurrection. He's someone that has actually led a rebellion against Rome. So they don't care for Rome. He's a known murderer. They don't care for justice. They care for their position. They care for their power. They care for how they are seen in light of others. And this is what self-justified people look like. It kills them to be seen in a bad light. To lose power or position, it threatens the very existence of the person and why they're here. And having to acknowledge that someone is greater or better, it's not welcomed but it's despised and it's a threat that needs to be taken out. And so filled with spite, Barabbas walks free. Now every Passover festival, Pilate would release a prisoner 
And when given the option, as we said, Barabbas or Jesus, Barabbas is freed and Jesus is put to death. Now, Barabbas walks free here, not because he's innocent, but simply because someone took his place. He doesn't walk free because Pilate's merciful. He walks free because someone took his place. It was meant to be an act of mercy on Passover. When the Passover happened, Pilate would say, well, we'll release a prisoner as mercy to you. But this time around, Pilate just wants to wash his hands of the problem. I tell you what, I would just give you Jesus for Barabbas. It's substitution. Someone took his place. If the justice system prevailed, Jesus was free. If mercy prevailed, Barabbas could have went free. But he's not pardoned. Someone took his place. This brings up two points that I want to make on Barabbas. Number one, I'm sorry that I don't have these in points for you. Our justification is not based upon how others live. I'll get to that in a second. Us being justified before God is not based on how others live. And number two, being freed from condemnation for what you've done wrong, that comes with no consequence, it isn't justice, and therefore it can't justify the person. But the first one, our justification is not based upon how others live. I've been in a lot of conversations where when you talk to people and they say, well, if there is a heaven, like if God be real, eternal life, blah, 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 blah. If all that stuff is there, then I'm fine because I'm really just not as bad as the person down the road. How's the person justifying themselves in the eyes of God? Well, look at this person's life. It's far worse than mine. Mine's better than that, so in the eyes of God, I must be doing pretty good. I'm sweet. Let me be clear, if you're banking on the idea that eternal life is going to be granted on you because it's a pass-fail of 50% of the population, you're wrong. And you're not going to make it. Because the sins of others does not somehow acquit you of the ones that you have made in the eyes of God. Your justification is not based on what others are doing. Barabbas might be free in the eyes of the people, but he is not free in the eyes of the Lord. And he will still be held accountable for what he has done. You see, people might escape the justice system here. They might get away scot-free all their lives, but they will face the Lord. All of us will face the Lord. You might be thinking, Steve-o, come on, the cross is mercy, it's grace. We'll get there but I want to plummet the depths of sin. What is sin? It's acts of rebellion against God, and they're punishable. And they're punishable by death. But they're more than this as well. Seven of the Ten Commandments are acts against people. They're not only against God, they're against people as well. Why? Because God cares very much for people and he cares that justice prevails. He is a just God, and he loves people, and that's why he is just. The people who understand this side of God better than anyone are generally those who have been grievously sinned against. I remember sitting in a classroom during Ezekiel, and we're exegeting, and the lecturer started talking about all the atrocities that befell God's people 
because of their sins in the eyes of God. And it's horrible if you read it, what happens to those people. And one of the students said, I just can't believe that the God of the Old Testament and Jesus Christ are the same God. How can a God so loving of people kill people in such horrible ways? How does it happen? I remember this sweet girl stood up behind. Well, I can't believe in a God that won't hold people accountable and I will not worship them. Him, sorry. She went on with tears in her eyes to say, if the people who hurt me when I was a child, if there is no ramification for what they did and God won't hold that accountable, then what's the point? I won't worship that God. And she was right. If God's way of doing justice is the same as Pilate's, it's the same as the mob, let's just let the criminal go with no justice. And God's no better than the rest of them. Being freed from condemnation for what you've done wrong, with no consequence, it isn't justice, and it can't justify you. Barabbas, he's not a sign of mercy. He's not a sign of justification. He's actually a sign of a massive injustice. Imagine watching this on TV. This would make your blood boil. The innocent condemned where the guilty should have been. And what's taking place is the will of mankind with the schemes of the devil, and so we should expect nothing less than injustice to prevail. Now, I'm going to leave Barabbas' story alone just for a little bit here. We'll circle back to him in a bit. But we're going to move on into 32 and 39 and look at justification as a gift from God. Jesus with the two criminals, he's, he's stripped naked, he's nailed to the cross outside the city gate on a hill called the Skull. It's called the Skull because it looks like a skull. Very original. Jesus hung between the two other men as, as a prophetic fulfillment that he was numbered amongst the transgressors, but he also stands in the middle because he is the dividing line between life and death. One will receive life and the other will see, receive death. And as he's on the cross, Jesus cries out to the Father, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Jesus, perfectly living out his teachings of blessing others who curse you and praying for those who mistreat you. But furthermore, he is highlighting something here, that he does truly believe that he is the Son of God because he pleads to God, his Father. But he also points out that Jesus knows the reason that the people are killing him is they have no idea what they are doing because they have no idea who he is. Paul says in Corinthians, because if they had known, that is if they had known who Jesus was, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. Jesus extends forgiveness to those who do not know him. Now some of you probably walked in because, well it's Easter. This is what the family does. This is the religious tradition that you should do. Maybe you don't know God, but Christ died for your sins so that you might know him. Don't leave without knowing that. You see, a lot of people, we don't like the idea of having to need forgiveness of someone that we perceive that can't help themselves or we don't need it from. 
And Jesus is mocked three times, and no doubt it probably started when he cried out to the Father. And in each case, their mocking shows a way in which they don't know God, they don't know what God is doing, and therefore they have no understanding of what they themselves are doing. And we'll move quickly through these. But if we firstly look at the mob and the religious leaders, they say, well, he saved others. He should be able to save himself. Do that for us and we'll believe that you're the Messiah. It's pretty simple logic. Jesus, we know that you have the ability to heal people. We know that you have the ability to make paraplegics better. We've seen you raise Lazarus. You've seen you raise a young girl. You have the power to save others, so it shouldn't be too hard of a feat for you to bring yourself down from the cross. And if you perform that for us, Jesus, then we'll believe you are who you say that you are. And this is a pretty normal objection from the world. If God is God, then prove it. Perform a miracle. You've done it before. Do it again for us. That's what the world wants. But they don't know God. And so they don't know what he's doing. And therefore, they don't actually know what they're asking for. The Messiah will be known to us, Scripture says, by suffering to the point of death, resurrecting on the third. How will we know that God has been with us? How will we know that God has proved himself? He went to the cross. That's how we know that God's been with us. But that doesn't meet the way that I want God to prove himself. Who are you that he would have to do it that way? This will be the sign to you. The Messiah will suffer and on the third he will rise again. If Jesus comes off that cross, it's over. There is no forgiveness of sins. There's only judgment. And people who still want God to prove himself in this manner or in these terms... I don't think they understand what's going to happen. The Lord will prove himself again. And you won't be believing by faith, you'll just have a reality before your eyes. And there won't be time for forgiveness, there'll be time for judgment, and that's it. Is that what you want? Now the Gentiles start to mock. The Gentiles, the soldiers, sorry, I should say, they are the Gentile population though. They don't know anything about God, not through the law and the prophets, so to speak. And so they more mock him on a point of authority. They understand authority well. You're a king. Use your authority. Come down off the cross. Again, a very common objection of God. If God has all authority and power, then he can just stop the evil that's taking place against him. Right? God, you got all authority. Then do it. Stop it. If God stops evil from taking place on him, he stops evil people, right? How many people does that leave us with? But seriously, how much evil do you want God to stop? Just the point to which you're evil? Or do you want him to stop all of it? Well, that comes at a price. We are evil. So there's a consequence. We have to be removed. 
So what does Jesus do with his authority? He doesn't just wipe us all out. He actually submits his authority upon the cross. Why? So that through it, evil people will have their sins paid for on the cross and that the people might be cleansed and set free. They can have salvation, not just condemnation. That's the beautiful thing of God's authority in Christ. And last but not least, we have the criminal. He insults Jesus and he reverses the order of the first. The first guy is moved from, well, he saved others. He can save himself. That proves he's the Messiah. The criminal at the end, he's, you are the Messiah. Save yourself. And then when you're in a position to save yourself, then you can go along and you can, you can save us too. Again, another objection to God and the cross and the reason a lot of people don't like the cross. Why doesn't God just save us? Why the cross? Well, this is what the criminal is asking. Don't save us through the cross, just save us. Come on, God, you got the power, you can do it. Why does God send Jesus to the cross? The other criminal, the one that rebukes him, has the answer. Don't you fear God? Since you're under the same curse, we are punished justly for what we are getting. It's according to our deeds and what they deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. You see, the second criminal, he recognizes that his sins and his misdeeds, they're deserving of a punishment. And there are consequences to the actions that he has made. And it's not only before men, it's before God. He recognizes, don't you fear God that you have to stand before him with what you have done? That's what he's asking him. And don't you know that God is just? That he will right wrongs? And if God be a God of justice, then he holds us accountable. And if he holds us accountable, then we all stand condemned. Jesus saves people through the cross because it's through the Messiah's sacrifice on the cross that sins can be held accountable. That is, they are punished there. God proves himself just there. And he is loving. That he will not let all of us go to our death. The two things merge here. If God saves apart from the cross, as the criminal requests, then God is just another unjust criminal. That's all he is. He doesn't care for the evil in the world. He doesn't care for the atrocities that take place. And it comes as no surprise and it comes as no shock to me that so many people will hate on the message of Jesus because we tell them that you are justified freely. And then we don't mention what happened to Christ. We're justified freely. I've got no problem with that. That's true. But don't confuse the fact that just because it's freely given that it didn't come at a price. God paid for it. The Son of God spilled His blood for you. It cost God much so he could freely give it to those who do not deserve it. This is the love of God and the justice, that sins be punished 
and the sinner be justified in the eyes of God. The question is, do sinners like us, when we look at a bloodied Messiah on a cross, believe we're in need of this type of forgiveness? Because the first criminal on the cross, he doesn't believe so. Move with me now to 40 and 43. Only the forgiven are justified. The second criminal, after rebuking the other man, he turns to Jesus and he makes a very simple request. He says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What led him to this? In his words, firstly, what we look at is a guy that does fear God. He is concerned that when he meets his maker, he doesn't know where he is. There's a fear of the Lord, and it's a good fear of the Lord. Secondly, he acknowledges that what he is going through, it's a just act. I am deserving of what has happened to me. He reckons with his sin. I am deserving of this. And thirdly, he recognizes in Jesus someone who should not be where he is. He sees innocence. He sees someone more righteous, someone that before the Father is righteous. And he pleads to a king and to a Messiah, as I'm sure they mocked and jeered as he heard. And Jesus replied to the man, today you will be with me in paradise. The criminals ask for salvation. God has put forth to all mankind a salvation that acknowledges that before God, all of us are deserving of death. We must reckon with that and the salvation that God offers, a salvation that pleads with a crucified Messiah. That's your king. That his forgiveness might extend through it. And a salvation that is granted freely to you by the precious blood of Christ. Two criminals that day were released in this story. There is a criminal released unjustly by Pilate. But what's it worth? He doesn't go away justified at all. And another criminal was released by another king, the one who died on the cross. But his king bled and died for his sins. Pilate's out to save his own skin. Jesus is out to save those who would come to him. It's a complete contrast. And this guy is the way in which we all must walk, pleading before a crucified Messiah, that is your king, for the forgiveness of your sins. And there is no other way to be justified but to have your sins forgiven. And I ask you this morning, have you come? Have you come? It would be easy for me to leave it here and say, this is the guy that you need to be. And it's true. It is the way in which you must walk. But I want to return back to Barabbas, just for a second. At one point or another, all of us are Barabbas. Because everyone here right now, whether this is even your first time listening, you now have a knowledge that someone has died in your place And out of all the criminals that we just spoke on, the only one that is still living is Barabbas. 
And he is the only one that has to deal with the idea. Am I going to look for forgiveness of this man who died in my place, or am I just going to keep on living the way that I want? You got a choice. You might have been in church for years, and you've heard this message over and over again. You might have heard it once when you were a kid, and it's always played in the back of your mind. But have you made a choice? Because the knowledge is that someone has died in your place. Christ, the Son of God, has died in your place. But will you receive it? Or will you squander it? Because Barabbas, we don't know how he ends. What's the point of his life if he never receives forgiveness of sins? It's all over in a few years anyways. Will you this morning ignore what Jesus has done for you or will you receive it? And each of us must make that choice. <clears throat> you see, the criminal on the cross, he had an assurance. He was waiting for the kingdom to come. His freedom was immediate. Today, this day, you will be with me in paradise. And he stands justified before God Almighty on the basis that Jesus Christ's body was broken for him and that he bled for him because he found the forgiveness of sins through Christ. And that is the path in which we all must walk. I'm going to pray and we'll lead into communion. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that on a day where we have to reckon with you, Lord, that you are not an unjust God who just looks over things. But you take our sins into account. And we also reckon with your mighty love that what you have created and what you made, and sometimes we don't understand it, but you love us. And that you pursue justice by bearing it upon yourself, the sins of all of us. That we might have liberty and freedom and new life. And I pray, Father, that this would touch our hearts anew. In your name. Amen.